Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This is PA Books, featuring authors of books about Pennsylvania's people, politics, history, business, and recreation. This week, author David McCallis discusses his book, N.C. Wyatt, a biography. David Michaelis, author of N.C. Wyeth, a biography. Why did you pick N.C. Wyeth to write about? Astonishing and astonishingly to me, in 1991, when I first began looking into Wyeth's life, there was no biography of him. Here was a great American, a great American illustrator, the uh, founder of a dynasty in American painting, and yet all there was was a monograph of his work as an artist, which had frustratingly to someone like me, a biographer, three lines about his childhood. You know, his mother had a great influence on his painting. End of story. Or um, uh, N.C. Wyeth went off to Wilmington and studied with Howard Pyle. It really felt to me as if this man's life, which had I found anyhow when I first started um, looking into it, um, it had more conflict in it than had been heretofore known. For me, it had what I think everybody reads biography for, which is character. His character was something that I instantly felt uh, at home with, something that I felt I knew something about, and story. I think story is the other reason people read and love biography. They're it's, a biography can almost be like the, um, the, the great 19th century novels. Here's, the, here's this great story of someone's life unfolding in front of you. And I think when you look at all the things that happen in Wyeth's life, it, it seems at first to be a stay-at-home life. He spent so much of his time at home painting, but in fact, the relationships he was having with his first his own family, uh, his parents, his brothers, his four brothers, and then later in life in Pennsylvania in Chad's Ford with the Wyeth family of painters is that the, the relationships were incredibly rich. I couldn't wait to plunge in and, and find out what was really going on there. For people who don't know him, what might they recognize him by? Well, he was the foremost illustrator of his day, and that meant that uh, Treasure Island was painted in 1911. Uh, in the Scribner Illustrated Classics, it was the first book that was sold at Christmas time. Here he was taking uh, a classic uh, novel by Robert Louis Stevenson and painting a set of pictures at a time when, this is before the movies uh, had really taken hold in the American imagination. Uh, it's a time before photographs were used in magazines or, or in newspapers. So images that illustrators painted were the images that people took to their hearts, took, uh, uh, took home with them, uh, lived with, and loved. And, Wyatt's pictures had a quality that were unlike almost every other illustrator working at the time, which was that he really used the medium of painting. Well, I want to interrupt you just for a second. What sure. we have on the uh, screen right now is a picture from Treasure Island, which uh, I bought a copy of this at a flea market for 50 cents about a year ago. Good, good, good move. Good investment. That shows you actually something that Wyeth was very well known for and something that he did. I think a lot of people feel that illustrators take away something from books. You don't really want to know how Huck Finn looks. You want to have your imagination tell you how Huck looks. You don't want to know how the hero of Treasure Island, Jim Hawkins, uh, looks. So Wyeth would always find in the book, before he illustrated it, find a scene that the 
author had only hinted at, had barely uh, fleshed out, and then would paint what you just saw, a scene of, of great longing, of un, uh, uh, sort of a, a real sense that, that here was a moment of, of, of great unresolved, uh, usually conflict, or unresolved um, uh, anxiety, or unresolved love. When you decided to write the book, how'd you go about doing it if there wasn't a lot of printed material about him? In a very peculiar way, which is that I authorized myself to be his biographer, which is, I guess, the great leap that you have to get over when you first start out in someone's life. You have to be able to, with very little knowledge of someone, say to yourself, all right, I'm now uh, going to sign up myself to do this, because so often there's, there's a, the, uh, an entire a world of people writing about a figure like Wyeth, students, uh, scholars, curators, uh, and in this case, N.C. Wyeth's family, most of his children, with the exception of one who had died a year or two before I got started, his son Nat, the rest of them were living in Chadsford or his daughter Oriette, who was out alive still in uh, New Mexico. And my job at first was to find out whether or not the family would give me access to what turned out to be a wealth of material, and much of it not looked at before by uh, a biographer and not looked at even by the family itself. He had written letters. N.C. Wyeth wrote the kind of letters that a biographer dreams of, these big, thick, meaty, rich, 10, 12, 14 sheets of writing paper. And he started it very early in his life in 1902 when he left home. He and his mother wrote to each other once, practically once a day, or at least twice a week, uh, every week for 23 years. And those letters form, it seemed to me at first, the story of his life. And they were in Chad's Ford, in Chad's Ford, Pennsylvania, in the Brandywine River Museum under the control of the Wyeth family. And Betsy Wyeth also, it turned out, had his mother's letters. That is, N.C. Wyeth's mother had written back from Needham to him in Wilmington. He had come down to study with Howard Pyle, the great illustrator, and they would spend their summers, the, the school of Howard Pyle would spend its summers out in Chad's Ford in the small little crossroads village where a great battle of the American Revolution had been fought. And Wyeth was narrating, in effect, the entire time in these extremely, extremely intimate letters to his mother. But when I started, there was no reason for me at all to be given access. I was not a biographer, I was not an art historian, I was a journalist who had written a novel, I had written several nonfiction books, but as I say, I felt I had a strong feeling for his character, some of his conflicts were very familiar to me, and I began writing letters. I got very little um, re reception at first, no one very much wanted to see me, and it turned out to be actually a great stroke of luck, because I think had I been allowed to come over and say, hello, hello, Andrew Wyeth, hello, Betsy Wyeth, hello, Ann Wyeth McCoy, please tell me about N.C. Wyeth, I really would have done nothing but recapitulate what was by then really decades of densely layered mythology. He had died in 1945, um, a tragic death, a, a collision with a Pennsylvania railroad train at a crossroads a mile from his house, and in the aftermath of that tragedy, many, many myths about him had grown up, so much so that when I first arrived, you could barely find out how tall he really was or how much he weighed. I mean, Andrew Wyeth, I think, to this day, swears that uh, his father weighed 300 pounds at, as an adult and almost 18 pounds at birth. He was a big man, to be sure, but a lot of the feeling that one had um, about N.C. Wyeth was that he was bigger, larger than life. Something about him had, had been made larger. And my job at the beginning was really to bring him down to size to find out who the human being was who was, uh, who, who'd come to Chad's Ford in 1902 and become N.C. Wyatt, to find out who the young man was who had left home and why and what was going on in his home. And a lot of um, uh, my early uh, reporting, a lot of my early research, a lot of my early archival ma material came from outside of Chad's Ford. It was a, uh, it was a great big sort of detective uh, sleuthing mission for, for a long time. And then finally, 
lo and behold, uh, came a May Day in 1993 when Betsy Wyeth and I met. And she is Andrew Wyeth's Andrew, wife. Andrew Wyeth, the <coughs> painter, uh, now I think 82 years old, or 82 this July, and Betsy Wyeth, his wife, have lived um, since their uh, wedding in 1940 in Chadsford, Pennsylvania. They continue to live there, and Betsy Wyeth uh, really was the authority on N.C. Wyeth when I came along. She had published a very, very valuable collection of his letters called The Wyeths and Intimate Correspondence, I mean, The Intimate Correspondence, and indeed, when I came along, she had really been, she had produced what was in effect a Smithsonian of N.C. Wyeth and Wyeth family material, and I like to think that there was something foreordained or destined about my arriving in that day because when she took me over to the mill, a, 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 a grist mill along the banks of the Brandywine, and led me up a series of ladders and, and, and floors up to a top floor where the archive of his mother's letters were kept, it felt to me as if um, I had been born to do this. That suddenly she was opening drawers and showing bundles and bundles of letters, paper banded like money in the bank. There was just this trove of material and um, astonished me by saying that no one had ever read the letters. And uh, I, I said, why? She said, because the handwriting's atrocious. And sure enough, N.C. Wyatt's mother had the most, uh, she, she packed her letters. She packed them the way a Swiss family would, uh, would chop and stack a, 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 a bunch of wood. She herself was um, the daughter of Swiss immigrants, and she was very, very um, lonely much of her life. She used homesickness as a, as a way of describing what was truly actually depression, a clinical depression. And she just jammed these letters filled with information, and it wasn't until I finally figured out certain things, her S's were her F's, and her TH's didn't have a cross through the T and so forth, that I came close to cracking the sort of Rosetta Stone. But otherwise, it was a long um, and, and absolutely fascinating process of coming to terms with who N.C. Wyeth had been at this early stage when it seemed that he was giving every detail of his life to his mother. But then I began to see, as I saw his mother's letters, that in fact he was omitting and concealing important information from her. How long did it take you to go through all the letters? I got married in June of 93, and Betsy Wyeth and I had met in May, and I didn't finish reading until the following April, basically, May, March or April. Most of that fall I spent, uh, summer and fall, I spent in the Wyeth's grist mill and granary reading these letters that would, I would bring over in a basket uh, from the mill over to the granary and would sit and have the most, I think, probably singular experience that anyone could ever have writing a biography about an American painter because here I was in a setting that was like an Andrew Wyeth painting to begin with. And then I would be reading an N.C. Wyeth letter in which he would describe for his mother the, the wingspan of a white heron lifting off the Brandywine River. And then I would look out through the louvered windows of the Wyeth's granary and see a white heron lifting its great wingspan off and flapping down the Brandywine River. Or one day, for instance, after the Wyeths had been away where they go all summer to Maine, returning, I had just been reading a letter where Andrew uh, uh, N.C. Wyeth, talking to his father, said, you know, I think Andy's going to develop into a painter. I may have a man Wyeth in my studio after all. Up until that point, he'd only taught his daughters to paint. But here came Andy, Andy Wyeth, and he said, and he's just walked into the studio and said, and I was just about to read what little Andy Wyeth, you know, was about to say to his father in the studio, when I heard 78-year-old Andrew Wyeth's voice out the window calling across the, the, um, the, the lawn to someone in the, in the uh, mill. And it was just these moments where time would sort of telescope and, and expand, and I was really in a, a, a period there of great, um, 
I felt sort of like time travel. It was, it was the most wonderful immersion in the entire world of NCYS life, in the world of his children, in the world of his painting. And I think if I could ever uh, have another time like that, I would be a lucky man, because I think it probably only comes to you once in a while. The trust, I think, given me by the Wyeths did enable me to write a book that was honest and, and penetrating, and to some extent um, was able to sweep away a lot of the myths that had been uh, uh, written and, and spoken about him for years. But I think that that trust is essential to finding your way into someone's life, because you really have to... Um, you have to see them from the inside and from the outside. And if you're only looking in, um, even just reading letters in, you know, sort of a in, in a in a library, let's say you were writing about Lyndon Johnson, you had to go down to Texas and sit there in the library. You know, there's no real sense of the texture and atmosphere of the life and the place unless you get out into the uh, into the area. There, there's a great dictum by I think it's Barbara Tuckman who said, you know, if you want to know what happened at the battle battle of Waterloo, you have to really walk the battlefield. Go out and see and stand and, and, and be aware of all the different swales and everything that happened. And that's what I felt like when I was studying Wyeth's life and where the Wyeths were letting me in to this small, enclosed, very insular world of Chad's Fort. I re really felt I was seeing the, the swales and the, the dips in the battlefield. How well did you get to know the Wyeths during this process? Well, it was, there was a, a, a bit of arm's length, of course, because I think it seems uh, probably only realistic that, that um, one keeps one's distance at the beginning to really maintain a kind of, it's not objectivity, I think, but just a sense of, of space between, I would all, often end days by coming over and talking to Betsy Wyeth and, and Andrew Wyeth about their memories of, of NCY, and he really turned out to be a ruling passion in their lives, and I think um, it was that kind of exposure to people who were still excited about a man they knew, had grown up with, had had conflicts with, had had a great deal of um, joy and also um, um, a real sense of needing to, to break away because he was a man who monopolized uh, people. He, was, he had a great emotional monopoly on his children. And here was his children remembering him uh, 50 years after what had been a, a sudden and tragic death. I think when people die in sudden deaths, their memory, is, their memory is, is kept alive in a different way than someone who dies late in life after an illness. And I think that there is an unfinishedness about that uh, kind of a death that allows people to keep talking. It's as if sometimes I felt that he had just left the room. He was still very present. If you went up, as I was allowed to, to his studio behind the house in Chad's Ford, where he had painted over 3,000 illustrations in his life, the walls had a quality of this man had just been there. The, they were still, there was dust on the books. There was, they were still in the, in, the, in the same, you could see in photographs that they were still in the same spots on the shelves. It was as if time had stopped on October 19, 1945, when he died. His house itself, where his daughter Carolyn continued to live with her dogs, was very similar. It, it felt as if, um, you know, Miss Havisham's wedding cake was still there. The day had just stopped. Time had gone on. Everyone had aged, and yet, there was somehow this connection to this time in this life. And the Wyatts have an interesting quality. They, they're, they're, they have a um, quality that I, almost childlike quality. When you look into their eyes, there's a kind of a, uh, an energy and a, um, a, a light, especially when talking about N.C. Wyeth, who was um, such a strong figure in their lives. Uh, you have a chapter in your book called October 19th, and it's early on in the book, not referring to the October 19th he died. And you say that was the day he left Needham, Massachusetts. And you say there, uh, Hattie's reaction to Converse, his name was Noel Converse? Newell Converse, Newell Converse. Wyatt, yeah. Uh, absence, uh, her reaction to his absence bordered on mental disturbance. To her, October 19th, 1902 was the day the clock had stopped and life had ended. 
When I came along, October 19, 1945 was given as, uh, October 19, 1902 was given as the day he'd left home, and that this somehow had this very eerie bookend in the fact that he had died in Chad's Ford on October 19, 1945. And I started looking into the dates with it, through his letters and through his mother's letters to him and recognized that, in fact, he had left a few days later. That wasn't so interesting, except that it was curious because for every letter that a, was exchanged for years afterwards on October 19th. It was his, he would always claim, N.C. Wyeth writing to his mother would always say, this is the day I left home 20 years ago. This is the day I left home 22 years ago. This is the day I left home. And he would always refer back to this date that it turned out was really not the date he had left home, but his mother and he somehow had chosen this date. And she indeed kept up an enormous, made a ceremony out of it really by every year sending down uh, what, what was called a home box. In it were, were, were boughs, sprays of pine, and and things from Needham, things from home that he was now going to have in Chad's Ford. She would send, a, mainly in the middle of it would be a birthday cake. His birthday was always coming on October 22nd. The main point of it was that they chose this date, he chose this date always every year to sum up his life. He would always look at it and say, well, since, you know, since last year or since I came down to, to Wilmington, um, and it was the date by which he and his mother, I think, really um, recognized that this first separation uh, had was the, was the big date in their lives, was the, was the day that they, from which they measured all others. And it was for Hattie, I think, a day. She had a great deal of trouble with separation. She had a great deal of trouble with her sons leaving home. When N.C. Wyeth left home and when the second son also left home, she asked the younger one to actually sleep in N.C. Wyeth's boyhood bed so that she wouldn't have to go by the room and see the empty bed. She was absolutely convinced that he was never coming home. And in fact, it's a peculiar, almost delusion is too strong a word, but it's a peculiar idea because in fact he came home constantly. I mean, he was on trains uh, to Boston, to Needham, throughout his adult life, writing letters saying, you know, I'm coming, I'm on my way. And he and his mother were, were absolutely inseparable. They, they kept on a correspondence, kept on an intimate relationship all through his, through his, through NCY's marriage through his own um, raising of his own children. And he never really, I think, saw into his mother's um, disturbances, into her unhappiness. I don't think he ever wanted to find out. It was one of his characteristics, I think, that he idealized people. He kept people up on pedestals. Howard Pyle was another figure in his life that he never came to terms with as a, as a young man. It was later, I think, he began to understand what his relationship to Pyle had been about. But at the time, and with his mother, he was keeping them um, on, a, on a pedestal. He loved to see people in a kind of glorified way. It was, I think, a way of keeping himself in the position that he wanted to be in, which was in a slightly, keeping people in a somewhat superior position, you have the freedom of being, you, you can do whatever you want now. You don't have to quite succeed yet. And it took him a long time to accept his success. Let's talk about his art a little bit. When did he start, first start painting? In 1902, when he first came to Howard Pyle's studio, which was then the equivalent today would be if a filmmaker, let's say, wanted to do animation or special effects or a filmmaker wanted to simply to make pictures, he would go in his wildest dreams to DreamWorks uh, and work with Steven Spielberg, or he would go to the George Lucas Ranch and study there with the master. This is exactly what happened to N.C. Wyatt. When, in coming with 11 other students to study with Howard Pyle, he was being, he was being told that he was a very privileged art student and indeed what he had at that time was more energy and more sense of, of movement and action. What he didn't have was, was expertise and technique and talent, and that's what he got from Pyle. If you look at his drawings, 
they are mechanical, they're stiff. The ones that he was doing in Boston before he left are not the work of a future great illustrator. What happened to him was he learned a lot from Pyle. He learned very quickly and he began painting. His first illustration appeared in 1902 on the cover of the Saturday Evening Post called Bronco Buster. And in it you see that here's a man who, a young man, 20 years old, who knew something about how horses looked when they were, uh, he had not yet, he, he himself had, had ridden horses um, in Needham. He had a horse named Bud, but he himself had not yet gone out west. And yet here in this image, uh, he summed up for a lot of people what the West was going to be, what the West was about. And people, um, it was the year, the, uh, was it the year before or the year after? At any rate, the Virginian, Owen Wister's The Virginian, was about to make the, the Western literally a, a, a new form. And, and Wyeth, uh, this 20-year-old painting in Wilmington, would be, would be supplying magazines now with images of the Great West. That's how he got his start. He continued on uh, as an illustrator for magazines all through the early uh, years of the century, and then came this great moment of Treasure Island, which was uh, the Scribner uh, Publishing Company publishers then of Teddy Roosevelt, Edith Wharton, John Galsworthy, the great distinguished pub publishing house, said, we want you to paint a gift edition of the great novel by Robert Louis Stevenson. He, in one summer, painted better than he had ever painted in his life. He, he finally resolved some of the conflicts he'd been having about illustration. He always thought of illustration as a lower art form. Here he was painting beautiful paintings. He was painting as a real painter, and yet he never let himself believe that what he was seeing on his own canvases was the real thing. He always felt he was falling short and falling short of a higher ideal. What he did in Treasure Island was he finally gave himself a break and managed to integrate, I think, the two sides of himself. And he painted, and he painted uh, as he never had before, and he managed in one summer to create a set of 17 paintings that were, without exception, the best works of their time. And his, the reception that Treasure Island received that winter uh, really set him up as the foremost illustrator of his day. Now, he did a lot of work for magazines and magazine covers, and you talk about how the, some of the magazines had, uh, were sending, in effect, war correspondents off to paint the World War I and uh, Spanish-American War. Why, at a time when photography existed, were magazines hiring painters? Well, photography was still in its infancy and people didn't yet understand how, what it could do. And I think that the, the, the illustrators, the picture makers as they were called, were seen, the, the eye was still trusted. The, the, the painter's eye, the painter's point of view was still trusted implicitly. And in fact, when the movies came along in 1915, for instance, when D.W. Griffith made Birth of the Nation, some of the scenes in, or sorry, not uh, Birth of the Nation, uh, in America, uh, some of the scenes are absolute replicas of Howard Pyle's uh, early, uh, the paintings of the early scenes at Bunker Hill. And I think it was that essentially painters were trusted. Their vision was trusted. Their, their vision was the preeminent vision. Their vision was what had taught people to see America, to understand history, to understand themselves, to understand everyday life. And it was in that vision, I think, that Wyeth was so... Um, well, he was so uh, good at portraying the very small details, the fine details of, of everyday life. Pyle had shown George Washington as someone you'd know from next door. He'd shown, given you a George Washington that could have been your neighbor. And Wyeth was doing something of the same thing as he portrayed characters in the West, characters in medieval times. A lot of his the story, early stories he was illustrating were medieval stories. He would give you people that you felt you knew. He gave you scenes and settings that you felt you knew, and yet fantastic things were happening in those settings. Wonderful 
romances, extremely um, uh, great, you know, cliffhangers, uh, adventurous action moments, but all with very clearly concrete, uh, nearly pedestrian almost, uh, uh, scenes and places. And, and, and that's really why his work succeeded at first and why I think people trusted magazine illustrators. They also had a glamour to them. They were household words. Uh, uh, in 1908, uh, Gibson, the Gibson girl, was the belle ideale of, uh, you know, of the day. It'd be as if someone had done a sketch of Kate Moss or something and said, that's it. That's what, uh, that's what the American, uh, young American woman should look like. And Gibson was being paid, I think it was $1,000 a painting by then, and that was a huge amount of money at the time. They were, uh, you know, driving big cars and living in big houses. Wyeth, of course, rejected all that. He felt that he had a higher calling. He rejected the world of illustration. Uh, the big, the big. He continued to make uh, draw good fees, but he left the world of Wilmington and Howard Pyle and set out for across the Pennsylvania border into this little crossroads rural village, Chadsford, and took his then growing family and his wife and just set himself up and said, "All right, I'm going to be not an illustrator. I'm going to leave that behind. All right, I'll do a few just to pay the bills, but I'm a I'm a landscape painter. I'm going to be the real thing. I'm going to I'm going to paint the landscape of Pennsylvania." And he sat down and started dividing his life. It was very very characteristic of him to do this. And so he what, did both at the same time? He would switch back he would, and forth? You literally, you read his letters and it would be, you know, Carolyn would say, oh, Converse has so much to do this morning, you know, he's, he's spent four hours in, in, in the McVeigh's field painting that rock and now he's back in doing a, a piece for the Saturday Evening Post and just back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and you can see this in the paintings at the time um, that he is really quite conflicted about how to become the painter that he wants to be and you can see it particularly um, in some of the paintings, illustrations that he did at the time, for instance, for uh, King Arthur. There's a, there's a quality to those paintings that is very, very classically N.C. Wyeth. If you see, um, if you look at the, uh, uh, we have at the, top the, the landscape in the background of that painting, we are not clearly in Camelot here. We are in N.C. Wyeth's Chad's Ford. I mean, this is not Avalon. This is southeastern Pennsylvania on a beautiful August day. And if you look at that tree there and you look at those uh, trees in the background and the clouds, you can clearly see what Wyeth is doing. He's bootlegging beautiful Pennsylvania landscape into his illustrations because he's so frustrated that he's not able to do it as a landscape painter, and, 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 and yet here he can. And that field, for instance, is, is in fact the McVeigh field right down the road from the Wyeths, and there are knights uh, fighting on it, and it's that bringing in of the fantastic, of the, of, the, of, the, of the great conflicts into the everyday world of the Pennsylvania landscape that makes it so alive. Now, if you look at the next picture that he was doing right around the same time, here we are. This is called The Fence Builders, and boy, is it boring. I mean, I'm not saying, you know, it's not a great picture. I'm not saying it's not beautifully painted, but it's not N.C. Wyeth. Any painter on a Sunday could have painted that. I don't mean that exactly, but what I'm really saying is that it's not as alive as N.C. Wyeth's painting. When he was Bringing landscape into an illustration, he was doing uh, something to the landscape that he could not achieve in his own landscape painting. I think what he was really doing here is preaching. He had a real pedagogical streak. He would tell people what they should do in their lives, and that painting shows him saying, all right, let's lead the simple life. Come to Chad's Fort, lead the simple life, be noble, spend your day building fences, and you will succeed uh, at your higher ideal. In fact, I think he was always sort of tricking himself. He was always sabotaging him his real talent, his greatest talents, which were in illustration. If someone would go to Chad's Ford right now looking for evidence of N.C. Wyeth and the Wyeth family, what would they see? Well, they would see the strangest sight of all, a great big um, interstate, Pennsylvania Route 1, slashing across a bucolic uh, uh, valley and um, slashing in the other direction 
great long strings of, of, um, of utility uh, uh, poles. And, and if you look past that, if you suddenly go past that and you go to the Brandywine River Museum on Route 1 and you go and look at these paintings and you look carefully at Andrew Wyeth's temperas, um, you know that Andrew Wyeth has painted the Pennsylvania landscape and you can see it there. You can go along Route 1, you can go up Ring Road, you can see the house that Andrew Wyeth painted um, some of the famous, some of his most famous images, Brown Swiss. Um, it's the Kerner farmhouse. You can see Kerner's Hill with it. Andrew Wyeth painted his whole life and continues to this day to paint. All those things are there and it's almost as if you need a key, you need a, a code to see exactly where things are. If you study the paintings carefully first, you'll see everything there. It just unfolds. It's almost like magic. You begin to have an eye for what is, what things are in the world of Wyeth. The, the studio of N.C. Wyeth is now open, actually. The Brandywine River Museum uh, runs tours through it, and it's a very worthwhile thing to look at because it's, it really is the studio of the great artist, and you do have a sense, I think, of his presence there. But it's really, I think, outdoors, in the, in the, uh, in the area. If you stand and look at some of the hills, you stand and look at the, the mist hanging on, on the hills in the morning, uh, you get a sense of what his life there was about, which was looking at nature, absorbing a world in its finest details, and then bringing all that into painting, which in some ways was, I think, a constant urge for him to revisit the past, to hold on to something that he felt he'd lost. Um, somehow the Pennsylvania landscape returned him to Massachusetts. He often said, you know, this place reminds me of Massachusetts. It's almost more like Massachusetts than Massachusetts. And really what he was saying was it was home to him. It finally had become home. And I think that's what he was looking for his whole life. I think, you know, the Wyeths have had a love affair with Pennsylvania and its landscape for, it's now 97 years, ever since he arrived in 1902 in that first fall with Howard Pyle's class. He went out and started walking around in a crackly cornfield uh, under a, you know, beautiful coal black sky with stars hanging down and looked at it and he said, this is it. And, and this is just like what I had when I was a child in the rural landscape of Needham, Massachusetts, and this is what I want. And he loved it. He just loved those hills. And he could transmitted that to his children, all of whom grew up in what we now think of almost as a kind of fantasy childhood of, you know, sledding in the winters and, and father dressing up as, 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 as old uh, Father Christmas and scaring the children and, and Halloweens. And I mean, the Wyeth, the Wyeth uh, childhood had a kind of outdoor quality and indoor quality that we all wish, I think, our lives would have. It also had this extremely um, unusual quality of homeschooling. It was a family guild. Painting was the family talent and uh, everybody more or less, even Nat Wyeth who was a, became the inventor of the plastic bottle at DuPont Company, uh, he was building things. He was building ship models. He was building castles that would be painted. Anne Wyeth was a painter but also a composer. They all were painting. Carolyn Wyeth was a painter uh, studying under her father for 19 years. Henriette Wyeth, the oldest, she was a great painter, a portrait painter. And then along came Andrew Wyeth, uh, the youngest. Um, and there was a, I think, a quality that I, I, I don't, you know, I, I don't know that, that anyone uh, wouldn't want that kind of a childhood where the family is very close, very close-knit, both parents um, involved in every single thing everyone's doing. They were really almost um, the landmarks in each other's lives. They're exhilarated by each other, by each other's presence. And, you know, there was a lot of stress there, too. Would you describe a... a dinnertime conversation with the family? Because you write about it in this book about what it was like sitting around the dinner table with the Wyeth family. Well, there was, I think, this quality of um, high excitement 
and I've, I've seen this in life both at the Wyatts and both with other families, where just the fact that they're all there, all looking at each other, the faces, the familiar faces, the familiar expressions, um, no family, I think, has ever painted itself more often than the Wyatts. Just to see all that and to all be there created, first of all, a great sense of excitement. And with uh, N.C. Wyatt at the head of the table, um, usually making, you know, some kind of grandiloquent, nearly a speech about something he'd been, some problem in his work that day or some piece of um, evidence he'd found about something in his research um, that he wanted to tell everyone about. And everyone hanging on his words, but also um, I think at other times where he was low, where he was feeling um, that he had had a bad day at work, he was not the painter he wanted to be, bucking him up and, and saying, you know, you really come through and saying, telling him what, what, a, what a great painter he was. Um, I think he also had a quality with each one of being interested in each one, what each one was doing, asking, drawing them out, um, asking for more, demanding more, never tolerating second best. Um, he was exuberant, you know, he was energetic, he was alive. He, the vitality um, was something that he transmitted. It was an experience that I think every one of those children wanted to recreate and still to this day wants to somehow hang on to and recreate and, and somehow find again. You talked earlier about what the myths had built up around him about how he was physically, but did you figure out how, what he was like physically? How six, tall? Six one, about 180, 85. Um, as as a as a young man, um, he would balloon up sometimes higher as a as a grown up. He he would chop wood early in the morning. He was an early riser. He would keep his try to keep his weight down. He was constantly he painted with great ferocity. Um, Andrew Wyeth would say that, used to say that there was a part of his father's studio right under the easel where you could see actually the floorboards worn down. Well, I went and looked at that spot and I thought, gee, I'll find the worn down floorboards. They were not quite as worn down as I wanted to think and maybe Andrew Wyeth too wanted to think because there was this sense of him as a giant, as a great, a great figure. And I wouldn't want to take away any of that because I think that's the effect and power that he did have on people. Um, but I do think that the real N.C. Wyeth, the real man who woke up every morning and marched 43 steps up to his studio on the back of the hill and, and painted uh, um, Jim Hawkins Leaves Home after consuming, you know, half a dozen eggs and, and, and pieces of toast and, and three cups of coffee, he was a great big uh, grabber of life and sometimes almost too much of life. Did he smoke or drink? Didn't smoke, didn't drink. Strangely enough, it's, uh, he, his is one of the few 20th century lives lives in which you find absolutely no presence of alcohol in his life. He really was not interested. He wanted sensation. He wanted to be um, absolutely overwhelmed by a thunderstorm. He wanted to look at waves crashing on the main shore. He wanted uh, the Pennsylvania sky to turn absolutely jet, jet inky black and then turn purple and then the sun to come crashing through. That's where he got his highs. He got his absolute highs off everything that was happening around him in nature. Did he have a sense of humor? He had actually, I found, a very difficult sense of humor because it's not a sense of humor that I um, either favor or know well, but I actually came to have affection for it. He would, for instance, had, he had the kind of humor where if he found someone, let's say his brother Nat, sleeping, uh, napping on the sofa in the living room, he would uh, go and get a plate of Limburger cheese from the uh, larder and wave the cheese under his brother's nose to see what kind of funny expressions the, the sleeper um, Nat would have as he smelled this ghastly smell. That was the sort of thing he liked. He loved um, sort of sly um, humor. He was, I think, um, he had a, I th a real sense of irony at, at times. He had a, uh, he had a feeling for um, um, 
old-fashioned humor. By the time the 20s came along, wisecracks, zippy remarks, that was foreign to him. He didn't know what that was. That wasn't something he liked at all. If you sat and watched him paint for a day, what would you see? I think you'd see a man, I think you'd see what you're seeing in some of the paintings, which is a man in conflict with himself. You'd see a man, a big man, striding up to the canvas, trying something on, coming back, frowning, scowling. I asked Ann Wyeth, actually, all his children modeled for him at different times, and I said, what was your father like when uh, he was painting? What was it like to sit in the room posing for one of the illustrations and watch him paint? And she said, well, it was unbelievable. He would scowl and frown and, uh, you know, stand there and, and, and wonder whether he was doing the right thing and then go up and paint some more. And uh, he always ended the day with Ann Wyeth McCoy um, with a, a bag going down to Gallagher's General Store in Chadsworth buying a, a, a bag of marshmallow, chocolate marshmallows. He had, a, I think, a real sensitivity to children. His children were often around him when he painted. Their voices came through the windows. Uh, he was in touch with them and felt that he had five points that were, that he was somehow attached to his children and they were the transmitters back to him of the universe, really. I mean, that he was getting huge amounts of connection to the world through his kids. And I think that's the thing that I, with two children of my own, found most compelling while I was writing the story of his life as a father. Because he found, I think, the foremost expression of his character as a father, the whole idea that was so potent in his life of self-sacrifice. He loved to give of himself to other people. He was an entirely naturally generous person. Uh, he wanted, I think, always to be subsumed, consumed, immersed in other people. And he felt this with his, that his, with his children. He could somehow connect through them to the world. How long did it take him to do a painting? Well, there's a famous painting down in the Brandywine River Museum where you see a bottle, a dusty bottle, and up in the right, a still life, and up in the right-hand corner is the, you can see with the brush he etched into the paint onto the canvas the word three and then HR. He had done the still life in three hours, and it meant a lot to him to say, I've done this work in three hours. I'm that good. I can still paint still life. I'm not just an illustrator. I am a, a classical painter. Now, I think the Treasure Island pictures are, are significant because he painted them very, very quickly, and I think in some sense that's the, the, the cause of their success. He allowed himself to, to just let go. He finally let go and just painted, and they are amazingly uh, painterly images. They're filled with darks and lights. They have the palette of an old master. And How old was he when he did this? This is 1911. Uh, he was in his, he was born in uh, 1882. So he was 29 years old and 28 years old, and he was um, on fire that summer. He was having the best summer of his life. If someone would want to go and see the paintings that he did for Treasure Island, where are they? Well, thanks, thanks to Andrew and Betsy Wyeth, for the most part, they and the Brandywine River Museum, they are now all on view. Practically all of them are there at the Brandywine River Museum on Route 1 in Chad's Ford, and you can pretty much walk through the series right there. There's another place um, where I think it may be the only place in America where you actually can see an entire set of N.C. Wyeth illustrations, and they're the great illustrations for Robinson Crusoe. And you walk into the Wilmington Library, the public library in Wilmington, Delaware, right across from the Hotel DuPont, and wonder what you're doing in there, because it looks as if there's nothing there but a lot of Jacqueline Suzanne novels on metal shelves, and up you go to the third floor, and more metal shelves, and a lot of people reading Hot Rod magazine, and you wonder, What's going on? And then suddenly, bingo, you look up and there are the 17, actually more than 17, I think there are 18 canvases. Uh, one was an alternate cover that he did because the publishers thought his first cover was too, it was going to be too scary for children. There they all are, every single one, brilliant color, 
and you wonder how, why they're not in a museum. How could, they, how could they still be hanging in the public library that he gave them to in 1921? Well, that's one of the great things about N.C. Watt is he had this generosity. He gave his works entirely to uh, libraries, to other civic associations, and they still hang there, many of them, in, in libraries all up and down the East Coast. And you can go and look at them and see them. And many of them have been restored now. And they have a kind of quality of being, as I say, sort of hidden in plain sight. And you have a really, uh, I had a great time when I first started with finding his work in places that were unexpected. Did you know much about art before you started this? No, I had a feeling that probably what would be to my advantage with N.C. Wyeth um, was to not have any real strong preconceptions. I, I had been, as a child, given, um, I remember a test in second grade where we had to go and look at Botticelli and Raphael and these images of the National Gallery of Art in Washington and answer questions about what we had seen. And I had a strong visual feeling from the time I was a little child, and that was all. And I had done, of course, the standard art history courses in, in college. But as an art, to be up on what was um, new or what was going on in the art world or the field of art criticism, I had no real conception. I was a narrative. I, it was the narrative I was interested in. It was, it was as, a, as a story, that, as a storyteller that I was interested in, in Wyeth. Are you a native of Washington? I grew up in Washington, D.C., was born in Boston, grew up in Cambridge, Mass., and Washington, D.C., and had a great sort of proximity being in Washington to, it's about a two-and-a-half-hour trip up to Chad's Ford, and I was going back and forth and back and forth, and I would find in Washington that Wyeth had painted a triptych at the National Cathedral, or that a lot of his work suddenly was at the, I discovered in the art in the White House collection. And uh, he would keep crop, cropping up in Washington, and I discovered him in the National Archives, uh, an enormous archive of letters from his days during the First World War when he was turning down one after another requests from General Pershing, requests from the Red Cross, requests from the Army to go and become a war artist in France and see the First World War. And again and again, he was turning them down because the family would come first, and he constantly was making these decisions in his adult life for his family. And it was interesting to find them in my own backyard, so to speak. There's a great, um, Washington's a great town for a biographer because you are in there with the archives. It's all there. You've got all, there. all the files are there. You've written three other books? A book in college about my roommate who designed an atomic bomb in 1976 to prove if he could do it as a Princeton undergraduate, then presumably terrorists would be doing it too. And so he wanted to make a point that publicly available information was, would, could, could potentially be dangerous. And I wrote a book about that with him and then a book about friendship, a group of biographical sketches about great American friendships, including John F. Kennedy and Lemoyne Billings and uh, Osama Noguchi, the sculptor, and Buckminster Fuller, and Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi, and there were two naval commanders and two mountain climbers and two Vietnam vets, and uh, I think there were eight profiles. Two men who were chairman of the boards of Chrysler and Quaker Oats, actually. Um, there was a uh, novel that followed that, and then now biography, which I feel like I finally found my right, the right form. Is writing what you do full-time? Yep. I write about books for the New York Observer, and I'm trying like crazy to find my way into a new project now. I've been writing about the Smithsonian for the New York Times Magazine and about a great uh, children's book author named Margaret Wise Brown and about the great um, satirist and, and cartoonist Al Cap. And I'm, I'm finding that I don't like to date. I don't want to date subjects anymore. I want to be married again. <laughs> and N.C. Wyeth was like being married, and it was like being part of a whole family. And it was something that even now I sort of uh, am in, I guess, a kind of mourning period because I, I wake up some mornings wishing that I was still writing about N.C. Wyeth. 
Were you a fan of his before you started working on this book? When I was a child, uh, I had a very strong, one of my earliest images is a, somehow, it's not connected to any of his actual images, but I have a very strong image in my very early consciousness of N.C. Wyeth being something to do with a man standing with a, uh, a bow and an arrow, but I've never seen it in any of the Robin Hoods or, uh, or the others, so I'm not sure where it's from. But what happened was, after my mother died in 1981, it, her death coincided with the reissue of the first Scribner Illustrated Classic. Treasure Island was reissued in 1981 at Christmas, and a friend of mine handed it to me, knowing that here I was, a 24-year-old, in grief and was not sleeping well at night, and here I was handed the book, and I really took refuge in that book, and particularly in Wyeth's pictures. And it was a, re a sense of rediscovery. I, I came to them suddenly and thought there was something in them um, that was meaningful, something that reminded me of my childhood, as so often is the case with people and Wyeth, he connected me back to something very elemental and fundamental that had come before. To this day, I meet people who, you know, they say, oh, you know, N.C. Wyeth, and they start telling you some story, some, something out of their deepest childhood, something out of their deepest dreams, and it's these images somehow penetrate into people's lives. It may be because they're the first images, works of art that people see in their lives. Often, in the early days, in the first generations of people who read Wyeth, you would see them at night, your parents would read you the books, you would come upon the images, after a moment of, you know, anticipation that this, an image was about to come, a, a scary picture and a piece of tissue would be turned and then suddenly there would be the picture. And oftentimes it was frightening or, or, or an image that, that, that caused you a great deal of alarm. Um, I think memory, is, it's, it's been discovered, does have an, a quality where the, the earliest memories you have are when adrenaline is going, when you're excited, when you're scared. And I think that YS pictures literally excited and scared people and they became part of earliest memories. And that was true for me, and I discovered also in the archives in Cambridge that my, the house I was brought back to as, as, a, as an infant was built on the site of the first Wyeth farm. And so I thought, well, maybe there was some, something coming up through the floorboards that, that had ordained this. Do you have a favorite N.C. Wyeth painting? I'll tell you one I love is called At Queen's Ferry, and there's something about the thing. Is that in here? It's in there, yeah. It's, oh. a, it's a single uh, single page, um, a full color page, and I have a, um, a strong feeling about it because it, it, shows, it shows the kind of um, work he could do when he let himself love what he was doing. Um, the light in it, he captures this truly American light that was revivifying um, stories like Kidnapped, um, there is a quality to one of the pirates um, in it where the white shirt, Wyeth painted clothes very beautifully. He painted arms. Um, he painted hands beautifully. The, in this, the, the clothes of the pirate, white, illuminated by the sun, almost make this pirate look as if he has wings like an angel. And it's this irony that it's what a child, what the young narrator of the book would see with his innocence still intact. Oh, that man's an angel. But what an irony that a pirate, someone who's about to do him great harm, is actually not an angel at all. And if you look deeply into Wyeth's work, that's what you see. You see these great conflicts and great struggles and great uh, uh, parables being told in the painting, in the way he paints things. I'll ask you about this one. Get a shot of that. In a dream, I meet George Washington, and he paints himself into this Something Wyeth Picture. rarely did was paint himself into, into his illustrations. He did it, he would paint himself in uh, metaphorically. And here he's literally in, it, in the image. And what this is, is a painting that he made after having nearly fallen off a scaffold in Trenton where he was painting a mural of Washington's entrance into Trenton. And he and was so... This is 
Andrew down here in the That corner? is Andrew Wyeth in the, in the left, lower left-hand corner, flanked by his dog. And Andrew Wyeth is down there drawing the very scene that is occurring back there. The Battle of the Brandywine is happening behind uh, George Washington on his white charger, who's come up to the scaffold to talk to N.C. Wyeth. And what, what Wyeth in the dream realized was that, Wyeth, was that Washington was talking not with a Virginia twang, but with a Massachusetts accent that reminded him of his father. And he looked deeply into Washington's face and saw the face of Howard Pyle, his teacher, who indeed really did look like George Washington quite a lot and himself had painted George Washington often. It's a painting about fathers and sons. Lafayette is off in the corner waving to Washington with whom he had an actual father-son relationship during the war. But that important, what you mentioned, Andrew Wyeth being down there, painting now as a, as a, as a young boy with his own eye and not settling any of his father's scores. There's a great deal of conflict going on because uh, N.C. Wyeth is, is hearing from Washington all about these battle, the battle that had been fought there. It's very similar to the battles that Wyeth had fought in that valley as a young student of Howard Pyle. But Andrew Wyeth is down there learning how to do it on his own, being his own man, seeing with his own eyes, and not letting his father um, uh, teach him or show him the way yet. Because what really bugged N.C. Wyeth actually in that dream and, and that you can see in the painting is that he's furious with Andy for not recognizing this great moment that he's finally gotten the general's attention. He's finally got his own father's attention, and now his son isn't paying attention. He's going off to do it. Well, that's really what saved Andrew Wyeth, I think, in his earliest days. Under his fa father, he went into the studio of that same year, 1932, and came out five years later absolutely transformed by his father's teaching, but somehow managed and needed to find a way to keep his own uh, self intact while, while he studied under this very dominant man. Andrew Wyeth never went to school? Never went to school, and was and N.C. Wyeth was his only teacher. And in 1937, after five years in his father's studio, he took 40, uh, at his father's suggestion, took 40 paintings, watercolors, and drawings into New York to the Macbeth the uh, Gallery. And it was a gallery where Winslow Homer had had his first one-man show, John Sloan, some of the eight, Sheeler. Uh, he had uh, a show on October 19th, a strange day again, October 19th, 1937, that absolutely blew everybody else away. He did something that no other painter had done, which was he had an absolute sellout. At the age of 20, Andrew Wyeth became an overnight success in New York. And the real mark, I think, of that relationship is that he came back the next day. His father, his family had all been in to see the opening, but they didn't yet know the great news, which is that every painting had sold. And this was during the Depression, when the American art market was still quite flat. Uh, he got off the train. His father hugged him. For once, did not have a sermon to preach. And Andrew Wyeth, went back with his father to Chadsford in the very next day, started studying anatomy in NCY studio. You know, he didn't go off to Paris or New York and get himself a, a loft or a studio and start off on some fabulous career um, of his own. He stayed in the world that had nurtured him. He stayed with the father that had taught him, and he learned his, you know, he learned his soup and his nuts. And he actually became, I think, um, a painter that you can understand better as a result. You can understand his work uh, because he immersed himself in the world around him. And it is the world, of course, of Pennsylvania and the landscape. But he also managed to transcend it. He actually, right, he, he paints in a way, I think, that he, he shows you landscape, he shows you realistic landscape that uh, makes you think of places you've seen. But once you see the places in real life, you realize that there's so much more going on in those paintings. You suggest in here that at one point N.C. Wyeth might have had an affair with, her, with his daughter-in-law? His daughter-in-law, Caroline Pyle, the who, daughter of... The, actually, the, the niece of his oh. teacher, Howard Pyle. They all lived in the same valley, in the Valley of the Brandywine, the Piles, and the Wyeths, all of them painters. Uh, 
Caroline Pyle's mother, Ellen Bernard Thompson Pyle, uh, had a career as a illustrator. She had studied under Howard Pyle. She had married Howard Pyle's brother. She painted Saturday evening post covers all through the 30s. And Caroline Pyle came to the Wyeth family, uh, you know, practically as a neighbor. She and Nat Wyeth met at a basketball game at Friends School in 1933 uh, or 34, and they were married in 1937. Nat was the engineer? Nat was the engineer, and off he went to, first to Detroit and then uh, to DuPont. And he and Caroline lived up in um, Pompton Lakes, New Jersey, where there was a DuPont plant. And it was during that period that N.C. Wyeth, when she first had appeared, he felt that she was young, careless, reckless. He didn't much care for her after and didn't, he totally frowned on the, the marriage uh, as he had with all his children. He, he, he tried to persuade all his children really more or less to stay at home. Um, when Nat and Caroline lived up in Pompton Lakes, the relationship deepened. She had lost her firstborn. She and Nat had had a child. She had lost it very soon after birth. N.C. Wyeth and Carol Wyeth had also lost a firstborn child. Uh, the, the, the loss of that child had deepened Caroline Pyle. She was um, a reader like N.C. Wyeth, a great autodidact. Neither of them had gone to high school. Both of them were, were teaching, uh, or, or to college, I should say. They both had gone to high school. Neither had gone to college. They were both learning literature, learning the world through their own talents. And she had a quality, I think, that reminded him a great deal of his mother, um, reminded him a great deal of the young Carolyn Bacchius that he had married in 1906. Um, there's Carolyn. Um, I want you to talk about her a little bit, too. I'm sorry, yeah, I've, I've left Carolyn out of the done. story. She, she was a, um, a daughter, the, one of ten children of, of uh, uh, a leather um, uh, maker in, in, um, in Wilmington, and uh, she grew up in uh, great um, uh, style that also she, her family had suffered ups and downs. And when she was um, a young woman uh, on a sleigh ride in 1904, Converse Wyeth fell in love with her and for a year and a half after that kept this extremely important relationship uh, a secret from his mother. He did not, he, he did not let her know anything about uh, this Carolyn Bacchius, knowing that it would have a strong uh, effect on her, probably would in some way unbalance her. And when they, was, he announced the engagement, the mother did not take it well. She did not take it well at all. She uh, took down every photograph um, of him in the house and replaced all of them with one single photograph, a photograph of him as a baby and frankly told him very candidly, I needed to get you back into that form. <laughs> it's, I think it's the reaction that probably everyone would want to have, but you don't really allow yourself to have. In any case, they had, um, uh, they find, they had five children. Uh, they had this extremely rich family life together. But by the 40s, a lot had happened to N.C. Wyeth. He was, um, I think, under a lot of stress, uh, physical stress. His heart was, was bothering him. He was depressed more and more. Uh, his illustration was not the same kind of work he'd been doing as a younger person. The, the, the paintings themselves, uh, the landscapes are darker, moodier, or the illustrations are more and more superficial. Uh, he was more and more, he was less and less certain of his place in the world as a painter. He was convinced that everything he had done was a failure. Uh, he was looking for new blood. I think he was looking for to be re rejuvenated. And he paints, for instance, Heidi in there. I think you were just showing it a minute ago. And he, Heidi is the story of a, of a young girl who rejuvenates, brings back to life everybody around her. And he, paint, he painted Heidi with the face of Caroline Pyle. And it's a, it's a real indicator, as so many of his illustrations are, of what was going on in his life emotionally at the time. He was really looking to Caroline Pyle as, as a force, someone who would bring him back to, to great feelings of inspiration. And they began writing. There was an exchange of uh, uh, correspondence that was going on into, into the 1940, 45, that is 
as I was reading it, one of the most ardent um, correspondences of his life. There was nothing, I, I had read his mother's, his letters to his mother, I'd read his letters, love letters to Carolyn Bacchus. These were just as passionate, and I was completely confused when I first read them about how far this relationship had gone. And in my interviews with Nat and Caroline's sons and with the rest of the Wyeth family, I kept asking, gee, what's this relationship about? Well, it turned out that there had been a romantic relationship. And it, it, it happened, as far as I could tell, um, during the summer uh, of 1945. Um, it happened, I think, partly because of the war. Nat Wyeth was a um, supervisor at a DuPont munitions plant. He was spending almost no time at home. He had to be on duty for a million reasons. Uh, the, during the war, 300,000 people were killed uh, in munitions factories. Supervisors were hard to come by. You had to keep people from bringing matches into the plant, anything that would cause an explosion. He was constantly, he was even checking people, you know, being a, a, gate, a, a gate checker uh, for DuPont. He wasn't home, and N.C. Wyeth and Caroline Pyle Wyeth were in the midst of this very, very intimate correspondence and relationship. How far it went is still a matter of conjecture. Um, among everyone in the family, various different family members agree or disagree as to how far it went. Um, there's a sense, I think, in it um, that it hurt. The, the, the main part is that it was a, a, a trespass into um, NC's relationship with his son, Nat, which had been very close all the way, even since college. Nat Wyeth, who went to the University of Pennsylvania, lived at home. He went into Philadelphia and to the University of Pennsylvania, but remained in that great, great insular um, life at, in the family homestead. Uh, N.C. and Caroline Pyle had, I think, a great deal in common, and there was a very, very strong and intense relationship there that was unresolved at the time of his death in that, in that train accident in October of 1945. And the folklore that really came out of it was that in the, it was an open secret, really, that this relationship was going on in the valley, and people always assumed thereafter, if you understand that N.C. Wyeth died in this collision with his grandson, who was in the car with him, there was question about whether or not that was an accident or whether or not that death was a suicide. And if it were perceived as a suicide, the idea, therefore, would be that this child was not his grandson, but his son. And I don't believe that story. I don't think it's mathematically possible. I don't think probably even morally it's possible. I don't think N.C. Wyeth would have created um, that kind of um, uh, catastrophe, really, in his life. And I don't think he would have committed suicide with a child in a car. But it's the kind of folklore that he and his life inspired so often. Um, I feel strongly that his death was an accident, and I feel strongly that the relationship that he had with Caroline Pyle is understandable. In the context of the war, there's a great title by the wonderful American historian Doris Kearns about the Roosevelt White House during the war, and it's called No Ordinary Time. Well, it was no ordinary time. My father, who was in uh, London during the Blitz talks about how everyone would jump into bed with each other during during the bomb when the bombs would drop because there was just a kind of um, it, it was different there was a, it, there was an elemental quality to life and I think that even on the home front even in a place like Chadsford which after all with Dupont nearby was one of the number one uh, targets for any kind of if there would be any kind of bombing in the U S it was going to be a number one target I think there was a lot of anxiety and I think whatever was happening between Nat and Caroline Pyle they went on to have uh, a life with five and have five uh, sons after the great tragedy of October 19th, 1945, losing their, their second child. Um, it's one of those family secrets, you know, it gets more embroidered or less embroidered and I think you have to understand it by looking into who they were at the time and, and really recognizing what their needs and what their sort of wishes were. They fulfilled things for each other, I think.
There is so much more to talk about, but we are out of time, unfortunately. This is the cover of the book, N.C. Wyeth, A Biography. David Michaelis, thanks very much. Right, thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.